0: Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. Shout out to Lumen Sports for sponsoring this episode. Lumen Sports is your digital headquarter for athletic performance. It's an Australian-made company that centralizes athlete management, team communications, scheduling, data visualizations, and features third-party integrations to save valuable time and elevate decision-making. Lumen is trusted by pro sports teams, colleges, high schools, and high-performance centers. Lumen is an affordable solution that seamlessly connects coaches, athletes, medical staff, and operation teams. You can download a free demo today to find out why teams around the world choose Lumen Sports. So today on the podcast, we have Sean Sherman. Sean Sherman uh, is somebody that I have followed for a while now, taking his Signal 6 course, which we'll get into a little bit, but uh, very excited to get on the podcast and dig deep into some neurology and isometrics and those type of things so sean gives a just a brief background of you and then dig into your your square one signal six courses and, and system a little bit and explain kind of what that is and what that does
1: cool well first of all thank you to both of you guys for having me on your program uh, i listened to the one you guys did on with kyle sammons recently and uh so really really well done and uh, so i'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to your audience um yeah so my background um you know, I guess on paper, I'm, I'm just a guy with a four-year degree, I'm no longer certified as anything that the industry would recognize anymore. So I, you know, I have been certified as a CSCS and a personal trainer by different different governing bodies. But um, I let that stuff go to the wayside as I started going deeper down the rabbit hole of neurology. So I own a, a personal training studio in the suburbs of Chicago. I live in Pennsylvania, so my clients are flying me back every Monday and Tuesday to work with them. Uh, but then, yeah, like you said, I, I developed a system called Square One and a couple offshoot uh, online courses. We have six, six being one of them. And uh, yeah, so it was kind of the story as as concisely as possible. That's a it's kind of a story of a, a bunch of happy accidents and a lot of things that made me pause for a second and ask some questions and dig deeper, dig deeper into some questions that I was that were coming to me as as as, as uh, my career was moving on. Um but yeah, so basically, in a nutshell, I I, I learned neuro-response muscle testing over, what year are we in here? Yeah, so over 20 years ago, 21 years ago now, uh, through a system called Muscle Activation Techniques based out of Denver. Uh, and with that system, I ended up getting to be the first MAT guy in, in Major League Baseball with the Chicago Cubs. So that was a really fun, about six-year stint I had going with those guys. And then my last year with the Chicago Cubs, I had, um, I had an impetus moment that led to the creation of Square One. And basically what that was, was I had this one client, Al Kamenicki, who I was running MAT on, and he just was not getting good results. I tried to kick him off my schedule after two sessions because I just didn't think it was a good fit for him. And he insisted on continue to come in and see me. And back up a little bit, MAT is based on looking at the right side of the body versus the left side of the body and looking for asymmetry uh, asymmetries in range of motion, looking for restrictions, essentially. And the interpretation that MAT teaches is that Every restriction is protective muscle guarding. wasn't working on Allen when I did the opposite approach, where basically we kind of fed where he had freedom and range of motion. Um, amazing results. You know, he calls me up the next day. His pain's gone. He's a couple inches taller, and he knocks like eleven or twelve strokes off the best round of golf he'd shot in in like over you know over twenty years. Uh, so that was the impetus moment behind Square One. And then the question I the, the burning question I had was, all right, well, since I really can't trust what I'm looking at with my eyes. So if not every restriction range of motion is protective muscle guarding, what about impingement? Those two causatives, you know, sources of uh range of motion restrictions are basically polar opposites. So now what I'm supposed to do. So the question that I had in my head was what happens when the foot hits the ground? So I was trying to return to basics and really I was trying to return to basics that nobody taught me. So, you know, I got my, my degree from Penn state, um, and they pride themselves on being this really solid kinesiology department, and they probably are, but they never taught me how the body was designed to move. And I just wasn't hearing or seeing anybody talking about, you know, at, at the most basic, basic level, how is the body designed to move? So the question I had, again, in my head was when the foot hits the ground, what is supposed to happen? So then I just uh, started experimenting with people and I was very much using this neural response testing to gather uh, responses from each person's body. So the the, the brain perceives every input into the system as either threat or safety. And so I was just using neural response muscle testing to ascertain how the body was responding to hyper-specific load being placed on the body. And out at the other end uh, emerged these maps of human movement. So we essentially got four maps. We got a map for going up. We got a map for going down. We got a map for going right and a map for going left. So, up and down, those are your two phases of getting upright or uh, static balance, you could call it upright posture. And right and left, it would be very clearly understood as locomotion. So, when the right foot is the ground in comparison to the left foot hitting the ground. So, that was me trying to give you guys the as concise of a version of the story as possible. So, I have these maps and we use these maps and find out where each and every person we work on. Has outliers within these super basic human movement maps for getting upright and locomotion. Question I had that I've actually been wondering for a while now since I since I did the Signal Six course was
0: from moment that impetus moment that you're talking about to the system that you created that you have have packaged and are now are educating other people on. What was mm-hmm. that timeline like? Was that over the course of months, years, decade? Like, what did that look like? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it, that's a great question. Um, I would say it was pretty much like 90% finished product within really weeks or even a few short months. Um, And at the time, it was crazy. I, I didn't have this in my head, like, hey, I'm going to try to create the system, and I'm going to end up teaching this to people. That was not ever my thought. I just really wanted to understand what happened with Al Kamenicki. Like, why would I did something that made no sense to me at the time? Why did that work so well? So... Uh, so my impetus moment would have been hmm, September, I believe it was September 9th. Like, wow. Which is what's today, the seventh. Yeah. So like, really we're coming up on our 15 year anniversary in like, in like two days. So uh, that impetus moment, that's so funny. I just realized as we're talking here, but yeah, I had that, that moment where, you know, that from that impetus moment, I had six weeks right after that where I didn't do, and I didn't really move on it. I just, I'm like, okay, I zoomed out a little bit say, okay, that was really cool. I have no idea what happened. i want to try to solve this. But then I reminded myself, like, look, I not. nobody's dying from using MAT. And two or three people were getting fantastic results. It's a, it's a really good system. So I'm like, all right, nobody's dying. I'm not hurting people. I'm going to keep going with this. I don't want to just jump off this right away. It's not like, oh, MAT sucks because it didn't work on Allen. So I didn't give up on that right away. I'm like, all right, this is pretty darn good. Uh, so I had six weeks, uh, about, about six weeks of me just letting the ideas percolate and just thinking. And my head kept going back to that session so I, I just generated a whole list of questions that I had based on that moment, and so I wrote those down. Uh, and what I was really was doing, I was not even questions. It was actually more like base principles. And I wish I saw that piece of paper, uh, but had base principles about what are the things that we all agree upon in, in in the human movement industry. So whether you're a rehab person, a performance person, a fitness person, what are all the things that, that this common ground that we can meet upon? And it was uh, stuff like this writing mechanism that no matter where your head is in space, your eyes are always trying to you know how your body's oriented. Your eyes are always trying to get oriented flat on the horizon so you can maintain balance. There's opposite arm and leg swing going on. So it was a list of about 14, 15, 16, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say. Uh, so that, that took me about six weeks to kind of get that list together. And then uh, then I started diving in. I just started imposing load, very hyper-specific load, like toe flexion and I would check a neural response test and then we'll go toe flexion the other side. And I just started just going through the whole body. I was like, I'm going to try to map this out. And I'm I'm going to try to do my best with whole judgment. And that didn't get very far because as soon as I've been toe down, we had a response and went the other way had this opposite response. My brain was already like, Whoa, that was really cool. So, um, but it took me a few weeks to map out all these joint actions. And then even like a year or two later, uh, I, I I wasn't I had no room in my in my in my map initially for arch collapsing and raising because I wasn't following a book. I wasn't following a cookbook. So about a year, year and a half later, I want to say I had a guy came in. He had foot or knee pain. I can't even remember now. And I, at this point, I'm already getting a lot of people out of pain and um, yeah, I couldn't get him out of pain sent him for an MRI. It was clean. He came back. I'm like, oh crap. I never checked arch. And as soon as I can't remember, was raising the arch or flattened his arch, as soon as we got that under control, his pain went away. So I was like a year into it. I didn't have the up down to sit stand piece. Didn't even come until like three or four years later, but the, the, the base, the rudimentary version of square one, If my impetus moment was September started really diving in testing people like late October. I would say by mid to late, December so about six weeks or eight weeks I had a pretty cool system built around right and left step and filling gaps within those two maps and it was working really well and yeah so I guess two months would be the short answer uh but it's always a work in progress so we're always like kind of making further inroads and having little 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 changes to the system here and there but our base hasn't really changed since you know 15 years ago really a couple questions based on all those um my first question my very first question
2: is where in Chicago uh do you practice out of?
1: Mm. I got a I get a small studio in Western Springs. So I'm about it's really equidistant from downtown and both airports. It's pretty much right in the dead center of okay. the Western okay. Springs.
2: Okay. I'll have to uh selfishly I'll have to come come check it out. Really? So I'm in like the facility I work at is in north suburbs of Chicago. Oh really? Which one? And then I live in Down. In the,
1: yeah.
2: Uh TC Boost.
1: Okay. Yeah I've heard of this in Northbrook. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then yeah. where you live where?
2: And I, I live in uh Logan Square.
1: Okay, yeah, my brother in law used to live down Logan Square. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. You're uh, yeah, take it. The train, the BNSF uh, train line goes right like a half block from my front door, so it's easy to use the public. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Come on, super nice. Um, and then my second question is, what is
2: your day to day look like right now practicing in Chicago, in Pennsylvania? How yeah. do you manage
1: all that? Uh, it's weird, it's like every day, every week is a little bit different. Because we're kind of like in this definitely, it seems like there's this growth thing that's happening within square one. So um I get up early on Monday mornings, uh, usually about 420, 430. Uh, and then I usually get a flight out of Harrisburg and that flight usually leaves about 6:30. So I'm giving myself about two minutes to not miss my flight because there's nobody on the roads at that time of day in, in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Uh, get in Chicago about 8 a.m. And then depends on what time I start with clients. A lot of times I don't start till about one forty-five. So then I'll take I'll take the I'll take a train line down in the city, get breakfast, have coffee, catch up on texting and you know Instagram, things like that. Get out and see my clients. So from like 1.45 to like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, straight through with clients. I actually sleep on the basement floor of my gym on Monday night. So it's kind of like camping one day a week on an air mattress, actually. Get up early, start seeing clients usually at 7, 8 o'clock on, on, on Tuesday morning, And I usually go straight through. Sometimes I have time for a coffee break or a lunch break, but sometimes I go straight through. Uh, And then I get an Uber back out to O'Hare at 4.30, get a flight home. So I get home about 10.30 at night. So it's a weird, like a 30-hour whirlwind. Wednesday, I'm dead tired from the flights and all that jazz. Uh, But then Wednesday through Sunday, it's time to be home. And it's really I'm trying to get at least a post or two a day out there on Instagram just to show the world what we're doing, whether it's a thought or it's a testimonial that I have or one of our students generated. So it's really, uh, you know, I I put anywhere from a half hour to three hours a day putting stuff together for social media, Uh, then meeting up with guys like you guys like on podcasts or people who are interested in becoming square one workshop hosts, talking to those guys. So it's just really, it's kind of fun right now because I'm wearing a bunch of different hats, uh, but it's really, I don't have a nine to five schedule. It's just a matter of kind of spending time with the family, getting some exercise, doing some hobby stuff, but then really just like every day, just uh, kind of massaging the whole square one message and getting it out there a little bit and, and trying to get better at that. and Then working on side projects, like um, like working on the book, the, the, the rough draft of the book has been done like a year and a half and I just have to... I just got to put that as a front burner thing here soon, and then I got another product, another online product I want to come out with called. Um, I don't want to reveal the name just yet because it's,
0: it's I, hard, I think
1: but... that it's generic enough; it'd be easy for someone to bill for it. I don't want to do that yet. Sure. But it's going to be centered around just upright balance, it's going to be a. It's somewhere between Signal Six and Square One in that you know the problem with Signal Six, there's not a, there's no, there's there's no assessment to it. But then the, the best part about signal six is there is no assessment and no skill to it. So it's really easy to implement. And then square one, the problem with it is that it's, it requires skill. Uh, but the best part about it is that it's hyper-specific and it's like, it's a, it's a deadly sniper rifle headshot every freaking time. So this other thing is somewhere in between. It doesn't require skill, but it definitely has more specificity than signal six. So projects go in places. And then, yeah, then on top of it, we've, we've done about, I think, 12 workshops already this year. So like every second or third week, it seems like there's a workshop I gotta to fly to somewhere on a, on a Friday, run the workshop Saturday, Sunday, then fly to Chicago, to see my client. So it's it's a it's a it's a fun whirlwind right now, actually.
2: So yeah, it's awesome. I love the I love the uh all the hands and different things. Um coming back to to some of the neurology stuff, um, just talking about the concept of threat. I know we're skipping around a little bit here, but so I gotta right. jump into this early. Can you yeah. just explain the concept of, of threat, what it means? and how yeah. you might fall into such a thing uh
1: yeah and now a lot of my i tell people all the time like my answer to a lot of questions a lot of good questions like i don't know but i'm gonna give you my take on it uh because i don't have a classical background in neurology uh it's really me retrofitting the explanation behind, uh to fit the system and what we're seeing but this whole idea of threat versus safe um I, you know i didn't get it from a book but i guess the literature backs it up Uh, the nervous system will have a response to every single input. Now an input is any, it's really any, any type of stimulation whatsoever. It could be a thought. It could be skin contact with the ground. It could be, you know, scratching yourself. It could be you ingest a food and the chemical makeup of the food and the texture of the food. It's the wind blowing. It's putting a dumbbell in your hand. It's anything and everything that's part of uh, physical reality. It's an input into the system and our brain is wired uh, because there's so much input coming in and the body's so complicated and the world's so complicated, it's pretty ingenious design built into our body that it's gonna very, very, very quickly perceive every input as it's just gonna put in two buckets, threat and safe. Right. So it's not like none of us are in a situation where every single input's a threat, and none of us are in a situation where every input is safe. So it's just just it's it's our nervous system modulating and regulating. Here's the good stuff, here's the bad stuff, and then it just starts generating the most useful and efficient patterns to to solve these different physical puzzles we encounter all day long so to me a threat is it's really i kind of use it a little bit synonymous with uh stress and that basically stress is a definite by definition is any any input that takes a system out of balance would be considered a threat or i would say you know, or, or or stress so and that's and it's dynamic because we're dynamic and we're not we're not statues. We're, we're constantly adapting and accommodating to our internal and external environments. So a threat is basically the nervous system says, yep, yeah, I don't like that right now. I need to avoid that thing. Oh, here's the stuff I like. So it's always going to gravitate and push our energy and our efforts towards the path of least resistance in order to survive and be as efficient as possible. So with that, one thing that I was thinking about earlier is
0: um, with some of like the examples that you used early on, you talked about bringing people out of pain mm-hmm. and One application that I've used the Signal 6 course was like trying to enhance performance. And is that kind of the basis of how this system could enhance performance? Because even if somebody's not in pain, there's probably some level of threat within the system. There's probably some type of affected input, and that's now then affecting their outputs. So if we can figure out kind of what that input is, we can then improve performance.
1: Yep. So sensory drives motor, so your input drives output. So to me, output, you know. Pain, you know, a lot of pain or no pain, it's just an output Uh, performance, you know, whether it's vertical jump, uh, agility, a skill, whatever you want to call it, those are all outputs. So I think how you enunciated that was was dead on. So it's really a matter of what we're trying to do is ascertain, hey, where is there a dampened level of input, you know, from our periphery getting to the brain. So if sensory drives motor and the brain craves and loves a lot of information, those areas where information is not coming back into the brain, that is representing uh, threats and challenges that the nervous system has to work around. So then we're going to have these compensatory outputs. So maybe our pain's up a little bit, maybe inflammation's up a little bit, maybe we don't run as fast as we'd like to or, or can, and we don't jump as high as we we possibly, uh, you know, our genetic potential would allow and our training would allow. It's just not able to express itself fully based upon these perceived threats, these perceived dampened inputs coming in from the sensory input. So our whole goal within square one is where are the dampened inputs? Let's Let's turn that up a little bit. So, so not
2: everyone, like you said, not everyone perceives things as threat, not everyone perceives things as safe, but mm-hmm. certainly there are, there are things that uh, are more likely to cause threat or are more likely to be, be safe. Right. So, uh, and I know like listening to like Dan Ficker speak, he talks about, especially within like the performance setting when he, he does a bilateral movement, a squat mm. or a bench press or a deadlift he'll superset that with some kind of cross crawl pattern. Okay. To get athlete out of threat. So what are the things that like that, those bilateral exercises that seem to cause threat for the most part,
1: To cause threat or to alleviate that threat, which you're right. To cause threat. To, to
2: cause, threat. Yeah, and, cause threat. Yeah.
1: And this would be a fun conversation to have with Dan. Um, he he and I haven't talked about this too much yet, but, um, uh, a guy used to work with me named Corey Murtha. He, he noticed that like Dan and some other guys are talking about how when we do these bilateral squat patterns. It's perceived as a threat. I don't know that that's true. Okay. So I'm going to take issue with that a little bit. I'm going just say, I, I don't think that's, I don't think it's commonly true. Okay. So I think what happens is well, if you do a, if you do a, perform a squat, you know, do as a little demonstration. So on the down, you know, as you're doing the eccentric, you kind of go into flex joint positions and you do the concentric, you're going through extension. And then a lot of times they'll check a shoulder flexion test. So it's almost like a potentiation thing. You just had the person perform an extension movement followed up by a flexion movement. So we've messed with this. So we've had people squat and I'll do an extension test. I'll do like a lat test. And when people do bilateral squat, it comes off as strong. So I'm not saying that, I'm not, I'm either camp that, ooh, squatting is good or bad for athleticism. I'm not even taking a stand on that. I think it's very individual is my guess. Um, I just think if, if, if there are coaches out there who are avoiding doing bilateral squatting because it's bad for performance based upon a flexion test right after performing a squat, mm, I think we should ask more questions. I don't, I just would, I think we should dig a little deeper than that personally. So that would be, that might be the only thing I've ever, that Dan and I have ever talked about that we might not see eye to eye on, which is kind of fun. <laughs> because Dan has so much great things to say. He's an awesome guy. Um, So then your question, what are things that are commonly done that are inducing a threat position uh, or a threat response? I think every time I've had a session with anybody, elite athlete down to someone who's a horrible athlete and never was a good athlete and just have, uh, you know, just that double knee replacement surgery kind of thing. So throughout, across the spectrum, pretty much every input is initially perceived as a threat. So when I work with somebody with square one, I literally start off with just having to do a mouth breath. It's a threat. I have them do body weight squats. It's a threat. Like literally everything, you know. I would say, uh, you know, in a, in a loving way as possible. When I get a new client, I, I, I refer to them out loud and in my mind as fresh meat. Like, all right, here's another meat bag we're going to work with, and let's find out what what sets them off. And literally, almost everything I do initially, I can say "boo," and it sets them off. I mean, that's and not even that's not just figurative. That's that's literally, like, it's crazy. How at first when I get somebody who usually finds me because of aches or pains commonly, they are perceiving almost everything in the environment as a threat. So I think that's why a lot of people, times people get stuck in a threat in a, in a pain cycle because like everything is a threat, threat, threat. So when you're when your nervous system is, is in threat mode, it starts. It's almost like a, this downward cycle where it starts perceiving almost every single thing as a threat. So what my job is is I want to I want to I want to neutralize that threat response to the most common blase patterns. Like breathing, squatting, body weight, you know, getting out of chairs, walking forward, up and down steps. I wanna, I want you know, chewing, swallowing all the basic everyday, you know, ADLs activities of daily living. I'm trying to neutralize those as a threat, give them a little bit more of a of a buffer, and then I start going into, you know, customization type stuff. But I don't think I don't think the lesson with what I've seen is like coaches need to avoid this or avoid that. And I always talk about how exercise worked before square one showed up. So I don't want coaches to be like afraid of doing certain exercises. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a a very useful uh, way for people to look at uh, this whole idea of threat. Uh, But the, but the really, the answer is like, if someone's in pain, virtually everything that they're encountering is probably being perceived as a threat. Just about, just about everything.
0: One, uh, really interesting thing you said earlier was just the thought like a thought can produce threat and i think that like that's why this might i don't want to give too much about signal six away but like the the thought of of previous injury oh yes and i just think about like athletes that i work with all of them at this point have had a previous injury whether it's a sprained ankle or torn acl and especially for the people that had bigger injuries how often they're like thinking about that especially if it was in like the recent past if they're just coming back yes. every yeah. time they're doing something in the weight room on the court on the track like there's probably that thought oh. of like oh my knee my knee my knee
1: it has just for preservation man just for survival like it's hard to erase because it actually happened that injury was a real thing so it has like a conscious and a subconscious memory of those things so absolutely sorry to cut you off but yeah. no no no
0: and that's exactly yeah. right and it's just crazy to me that like before I even was exposed to the system, that would have never even been a thought of mine of like, just that oh. thought is dampening outputs, not even yeah. like the physiological tissue yeah. damage. It's like the thought inducing the, the threat within the nervous system and dampening outputs, which I think is, oh, yeah, great. Like that is just mind blowing oh. to me.
1: And, and that's what we'll do sometimes would you bring these things up. Like if I if I have an athlete I'm working with, you know, whatever level, junior high to pro, whatever, someone finds me who's an athlete, you know, I do the general things like I can do with everybody, like squatting and breathing. And like I, I try to take as little for granted as possible. And I don't assume that just because this person's a very good athlete that body bodyweight squatting or walking up down steps is not going to have a threat response because it almost always does on session one. So we get rid of that, the low-hanging fruit. And then oftentimes I'll start going into scenarios they might face in a game. So if I have a baseball player, I might build these scenarios. Like, Hey, it's, it's a tied game and it's two outs and you're up and it's bases loaded. All you got to do is safely reach first base. Somehow get hit by pitch, hit a home run. It doesn't matter. You just have to safely not create an out and you guys win the game. And you know, a guy throws a meat pitch right down the middle and you whiff at it. So I try to create like, Oh my, it's like the dream scenario and just became the nightmare scenario and I had coaches watch me do this and they get mad at me because like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm not saying this is, becomes like a mental practice where they focus on the negative. Like I want them to focus on the positive when I'm not there, but right now let's just, let's just lay it bare. Let's just throw it out there. Let's just pull out all these fears you have. Cause if we can actually address those fears where we're not going to get rid of the fear, but we can get where your physiology, where your neurology can uh, uh, respond very positively in the face of that. Like, are you kidding me? That that's that's the difference between winning and losing almost every game. So, yeah. So we we we, we tap into that the whole mental emotional piece too for sure.
2: There's a, a uh, there's a high school soccer player that I have been working with recently, and she in January she had surgery on her knee. She had uh, patella um, ligament surgery on her knee, and she was supposed to have been cleared four months out was their um, expectation for was four months to back yep. in action. And then I saw her about the six month mark and she still wasn't cleared because she had been slow to recover and whatnot. Finally, about seven months, she was fully cleared. She was back. She was playing in soccer. Her first game playing, she hyperextended that same knee. Yep. And then she came back to me and she was like, she was limping around. Um, we were working together. She got to the point where she was feeling a lot better on that, on her leg, but not quite ready to play soccer. And her dad texted me. He's like, Hey, she has a game like next week. Like she has to be ready to play. And he's like, it's just a mental issue at this point with her. She's like, she Lovely. can play. She's a mental issue as totally. if the that side of it was significantly less important than the actual physical issue, right? Because physically know. she was doing well, but mentally yes. she was just like so scared of not only having doubling her recovery time, but then as soon as she came back, she had an immediate setback. So she totally. was like so nervous, any pressure on this leg. And her dad was like, it's just mental. She's got to go do it until i have a conversation with him well actually yeah. i feel like that's potentially as important if not more important than the actual physical capacity she has
1: absolutely you are what you think you are kind of thing and if you get the tissue like it's that's, that's what really grinds my gears actually that's like you guys are hitting on like okay you want to know what bothers me in our industry it's like the quote-unquote experts whoever those people are and like oh no but the mri came out good and the x-ray is good there's nothing wrong like you you think you can boil the human existence down to a freaking picture? Are you are you kidding me? Like there's there's so much more going on underneath the surface, and to act like that's not a real thing, or someone doesn't respond well, and it's oh well because they're weak minded, like wow, like it's like that's that's like you have the understanding of a two year old about this stuff. I mean, come on, like if you live at all and you've sprained an ankle, like how many times have you guys had an old injury? I don't know if this happened to you guys. Maybe you guys are too young and too healthy. But there's times where I've, I'll be walking on my gym. And I've had so many ankle sprains from years of basketball when I was younger. And when I'm not getting enough sleep and there's a lot of things going on, there's there's the lady who works with me. She was like, you know, you're limping. I'm like, what are you talking about? So I'm literally limping around my gym. I don't even know it. It becomes my new normal. So I kind of fall back in old patterns because when stress is high, and it's still like my body probably going into some level of aversion from ankle injuries that I had, whatever, 25, 30 years ago, and it still rears its head up every once in a while. The behavior will come back, and like it'll present itself. And again, the weirdest part to me is, unless you showed a video to me of that, I wouldn't even know I'm doing it because like it doesn't hurt, but I just have a little bit of a gimp going. And it's crazy how the the the, the subconscious belief and the subconscious memory, it's there, and uh, it's it's it reminds you of the book, uh, you know, I've been referencing a lot lately is the the body keeps a score. It's it's the same thing with PTSD. And I think what we're doing with even with Square One is like. I, I, this is not to discount anybody who has, you know, who has uh, mental health issues because of horrible things happen to them. But I think all of us have had little, it's like death by a billion paper cuts and there's these little memories. And I think with square one, we're going in there. Let's erase that one. Let's erase that one. Let's erase that one. Let's give your brain less, less reasons to compensate is the same as giving it more resources to solve problems. I think it's one and the same. So I think we're kind of going in there, erasing these, these subconscious poor movement memories that, it's just not going to come out on a picture ever.
0: Now I think that ties great into this next piece that I'd love to d- dive into and cool. I think it's it's a cool way to put it is actually like what is that eraser? And mm-hmm. from my understanding and the system it's the power of isometrics. That's part of it, part of it. Okay. So let's so. so let's dig into isometrics, at least that part of it. And yes. explain to us how and why that's so powerful and kind of how that's that's used to be at least a portion
1: of the eraser. I hope I don't butcher what I have in my head plan here. Okay. So that's a great question. I look at, um, there's a couple of reasons I have a special affinity to isometrics. And at the end of the day, the, the real reason, in my mind, if you had to give me the number one reason I like isometrics, it's because... To me, all this stuff we're talking about, is all about position. It's position of the eyes, it's position of the head, it's position of all the joints. And the magic happens when you get that, when you can drive uh, motor output signals, increase that neural drive to areas where there's a dampened input coming back into the brain. So if I'm spending a second and a half in that position, that's about all it takes to kind of flip the switch to safe. If I'm doing a concentric and eccentric, I'm only there for, what, a tenth of a second? I might have to do 10 or 15 isom- or, uh, concentric eccentrics in the same position, or I could do a one-and-a-half-second isometric. So my affinity towards it is, oh, my gosh, in a one-and-a-half-second spending time in that extreme position that is being presently perceived as a threat, one-and-a-half-second is the eraser. And I could do the same thing if I like to say it's hip extension. I could lay my belly and I could do hip extension, but I might have to do five of those or ten of them or fifteen. and it's just a lot quicker, a lot more efficient. So that's my special affinity. And then if we get into you know a little bit of the physiology behind it. If you look at, you know, positions of muscles, you know in mid range that's where mechanically speaking a muscle is going to be at its strongest that's where it has that 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 optimal force angle that where it can generate where the highest percentage of your, of your effort is going to be turned into work so if you want to, i was if you want to knock over a wall you want to push at a 90 degree angle that's where most of your force can be harnessed to produce that desired outcome so mechanically speaking mid range is strongest short and long range would be weakest uh, neurologically, a muscle is at its strongest in, in, in a stretch position for protection reasons. And I use the example all the time of you're doing a bench press and you gotta, you're going for a PR and you have all that weight in the bar at the bottom of the range. That's where things could often go, you know, not go so well. So neurologically, we are wired to, you know, through probably the Golgi tendon and probably other aspects that I'm not even super aware of or I've forgotten in the past. But that's where we're wired to protect. Like, okay, if this thing gives, I'm, I'm. This is this going to be really bad. So, a stretched muscle is neurologically a strong muscle. So, then if you think back mechanically and neurologically, a a, a muscle is going to be at its shortest and under both those characteristics in a short position. So, I have this affinity to spending a second and a half and and, and beyond in in isolated extreme short positions of the muscle. And and then the magic I think really happens is. It's not just, hey, just do a bunch of ISOs. And that's not a bad takeaway. Just do a bunch of ISOs. And I do a bunch of ISOs on myself and my clients all the time. But if, when you actually have a sniper rifle where you have a map and you can actually start loading the body and finding out where the hyper-specific weaknesses are, where it has this threat response, and then you marry an isometric there, that's 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 money. And that's 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 what square one is to me. What would be the benefit of spending
0: longer
2: than a second and a half in an isometric
1: position at their joint? You know, I, I'd be totally talking on my butt if I answered that, because I, I would say I have not really looked into it too much because I'm not really thinking about, in my world, I'm not really thinking about the training stuff anymore. I'm not thinking about, okay, hold this wrist long, or let's do an eight-second isometric or a eccentric versus a two. And I'm not even thinking that way as a strength coach. I'm more thinking about, can I get a person's perception to be such that almost nothing is being perceived as a threat so it's almost uh, my job is almost to get a person so robust neurologically and then I send them back to their coach and then a the coach can put thought in those things so I think I'd be I'd be talking beyond my pay grade to give you uh, my thoughts on on that question so I'm going I'm going I'm going to safely duck out of that one I think okay. now now
0: with these like uh affected joint actions how does that okay. initial that you're trying to introduce the isometric two to, to mm-hmm. let's say, uh reintroduce that neural pathway. How does that initial block happen? Does that make sense? Like, is that think, a yeah. threat response? Yeah. Like, how does that initially happen? And how do we get into these like, four joint actions or, or disconnected joint actions?
1: Well, I, I there's a big question, not a, not a little one, I would say that, you know, we are we are a composite of all of our systems that make us who we are you know it's our endocrine system and it's our muscular system and our circulatory and our nervous system all these things that makes up who we are and our brains our bodies only have a limited amount of resources a limited amount of what is called energy to allocate to all these different systems to create safety and and, and survival really so if you're somebody who has like awesome genetics where both your parents were Olympic gold medalists and you were born in that perfect climate and you have organic foods and you're only surrounded by your best buddies and everybody tells you you're wonderful. And all right, well, they have a pretty freaking robust nervous system, probably. And they're just like, wow, good for you. You hit the genetic and the lifestyle lottery, but that's, that's, that's pretty much nobody's reality. I mean, it's just a fictitious scenario. So I think it's just a composite of the DNA that you inherited from mom and dad and then your choices and the environments and the things that have happened to you in the past we're all a composite of that history and that dna you know so it's 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 environment and it's and it's and it's uh genetics so then we have a limited amount of resources so if your brain says hey uh you're fighting a flu right now and you're trying to get a paper done for your final for some class that you really care about and your girlfriend just broke up with you oh and you got practice tonight like okay there's a lot of strikes against that person so your brain's like well you know, I don't give a crap about how high you can jump. I'm gonna prioritize. I, I got to fight this infection. So it'll the brain is just it's amazing. It, it has a there's a priority list, and sometimes the priorities for, for survival isn't our conscious. Well, no, I really want to go to that movie tonight after all that crap. I like. Well, that's not your brain's priority. Your brain's priority is to keep you alive. So I think in that in that innate wisdom and the innate intelligence that we're that's put into all of this, it chooses what is most. Beneficial and gonna have the most direct impact keeping you alive first. Like we gotta we gotta stay alive before we can thrive, kind of thing. So I would say I don't know exactly why the brain says, Hey, you know what? Knee flexion, that's gonna be the issue right now. I don't know why that is. Sometimes it's more obvious, like, yeah, you took a spill, you fell in your elbow. And I bet if I got my hands on you like three days later, we're probably gonna find a lot of crap in that dude's elbow, wrist, shoulder, we're probably gonna find some local issues. But after a while, we work around it. And then you have another insult three weeks later, of the shoulder or whatever. And then you have this freaking map of uh, it really just tells the whole story of trauma, your DNA, all these different things. And I don't think we can always accurately say, oh, you know what? That inversion of your heel, that's the issue. That's because of blah, blah, blah. I think then you're starting to play God and like act like you have answers. That you don't really have the answers. I look at when I'm working with somebody, it's it's kind of fun. Is like I I see the I see the story unfold in reverse chronology. So it's like last guy in the pool is the first guy out, or the layers of an onion, whatever you know, whatever analogy you want to use. So we're going to clear out the most recent reason, and just going deeper, deeper, deeper. But I I don't know, I don't know specifically why the brain says, yep, yeah, you know what, hip adduction. That that's that's where I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take resources away from that. I'm gonna give it over here to. You know, and that guy's stressing out because he's afraid to go talk to that girl because he's, you know, just real shy or something. Like, I, I don't know how the brain decides that. I think that I think that mentioning ahead.
0: this is just a quick comment and then you can ask a question, Mike. But I think that I think that just like remembering that the body is just wired for survival is very impactful. Like all the things that you mentioned are like you mentioned the Golgi tendon organ and the stretch <laughs> shortening cycle. Like those things are literally just protective mechanisms to keep us alive that we've hijacked. Yeah. Yes. to create better performance but at the end of the day our yes. body is wired to keep us alive
1: massive like nobody in our industry does not agree with that so i always feel that i'm reminding people of that because what i wrote down mike sorry please don't lose your question this might oh, yeah. Um, but it, it got me on another pet peeve like um, i feel like i'm trying to kill the storyteller in our industry because our industry is just littered with storytellers you're like, oh, I'm the guy. I got, I got my, you know, I got my double PhD and this and that, and I've been working with people for X number of years, and I'm supposed to believe your 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 biography, and your, you know, your, your all that kind of stuff, and then you're gonna tell me a story why this guy has knee pain. Like, dude, that's so crazy. Like, there's no way that that's consistently possible. I call bullshit on that, right? So my whole thing is, I'd rather I'm trying to create people that become interpreters of movement. So there's a story that's already been written. So my job is to draw out the story and as accurately as i can interpret what that story is and i think that's what we're really trying to do i mean i don't think that i know that that's what i'm trying to do with square one is instead of guy like instead of Building logical, sensible, reasonable stories. Why don't you just ask the nervous system, man? It's it's already on there. It's going to give you the answer right now. This is what I need to compensate for. Let's get rid of it. Let's challenge them. Let's pull out another layer of compensation. Let's find the source. And then all, you, all of a sudden, 20, 50, 100 layers in, the guy's shoulder pain and hip pain goes away. Well, then I can tell you, hey, you know what? I don't know your whole story, but I know the last three chapters because your nervous system just told me that. But I couldn't have told you that at the beginning of the session what I was going to do with you. I'm going to interview your nervous system. It's going to spit out the end of the story, and then we're going to work our way backwards like a reverse chronology. So, yeah, I'm not a I'm not mad at anybody personally, but I'm just kind of I, I get upset with the storyteller mindset because we're all supposed to believe that logical, reasonable story, and combine that with a you know three phds and that's believable but then what ends up happening is people don't get better and then their hope gets robbed and then you have a you know our country's filled with people like well you're not gonna be the guy that helps me either because you know i saw these three pts and these two Kairos. like well actually the fact that you've seen 20 different people that actually ups the odds that i'm gonna help you because this is a different unique perspective that, that nobody's run on you before so i would say like i don't have any answers but i gotta kick but system that's going to draw out your nervous system's answers to these questions. And if we can negotiate with that accurately and skillfully, 90, 95% of the time, really cool things start happening. Mike, sorry. We both got you off. No, no.
2: I didn't know. I think that was a wonderful anecdote. And I think that interviewing your nervous system is yeah. a phenomenal quote. Thank that, you. That you should put on a coffee cup somewhere for sure. I, I try, I'm
1: trying to say it more because I started saying that about eight, 10 years ago and there's other bodies out there. I'll see stuff on Instagram. Like, oh, I wonder where they got that. Like there's still some of my uh, little euphemisms and little sayings.
2: Uh, but the question that I, that I had as you were kind of talking through that was so, so two thoughts. The first thought is, is it safe to assume that no matter what, with the input of life in general, you're going to have threat. Like there's going to be threat. You're going to have it. You can't avoid it. Right. So then okay. let's just, yeah, let's just take for you as, as an example, right? You kind of talk through what your week looks like, right? Yep. And just in the discussion of what your week looks like, like you're flying, you're sleeping on a gym, you're just sleeping on a gym floor, right? There seems to be a lot of perceived threat. So if you don't mind sharing, like what are things that you do personally yeah. to like pull yourself out of threat? And then how often do you find yourself needing to do that?
1: Uh, well, I, I have some daily practices that I engage in. So that, That's a phenomenal question, and, and I man, I love that question because I tell my clients all the time, like I'm not asking you guys to do anything that I don't do myself. Like I, I'm I'm my first test dummy, and then it might be my clients who know me for a while, my buddies and family. Uh, so yeah, like I, I think it's super huge to uh, to walk to walk, not just talk to talk. So uh, part of my morning routine is, you know, besides going to the bathroom, you know, doing doing a number. of it "Be number one." There you go. Do a little pee-pee. Uh <laughs> Start with that, and then I literally I come in back into my bedroom. I lay on the floor, and I just start working through a bunch of isometrics, head to toe. So I'm, I'm, I usually start the, the I either start the fingers and toes, or start in the core. So either extremity to core or core outward is how I usually run it. And maybe I probably should be a little more intentional about that. Maybe I should swap it up, swap it up every day. But I literally work through three planes of movement, both directions, starting the core and working my way out. Then I usually go downstairs, let my dog out, put him on a chain so he can go to the rest bathroom, and then I get that that sunlight in the morning. Yeah, what's what's the Stanford guy there we talks about the brain guy uh, with the beard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks about it. So, like, yeah, that's that's such a great idea, and that, that makes so much sense to me. So I'll get up there, and I'll do some some standing isometrics that I've been doing for a while, and then some stuff that I even borrow from uh, Tommy John Jr., who's got some interesting viewpoints and some stuff as well. I know who I don't know personally, uh, but I, I kind of go through some, you know, just some head movements and some torso movements, some balance things. Uh, I'll go stand in the grass. So I do some grounding. So my shoes are usually off even in the winter. So whether it's standing snow or it's freaking hot, I'll literally ground. So we've been testing that. Literally having contact with the ground is another neurological reset that we've been finding last Not that I found it, but something we've been testing and like, wow, this is, this actually is another little reset and I'll go to a bottom of a squat position. So I'm doing nasal breathing, head positions. So yeah. So a combination of head positions, eye positions on my back, standing up, sunlight on the ground, come back in, uh, hydrate, you know, I don't take many supplements, but I kind of do that stuff, get my morning coffee. So, those are things I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing eye movements, nasal breathing on my flights. I'm doing box breathing inhale six, or oh, I'm sorry, inhale four, hold four, exhale four, hold four, all, all through my nose. And I'll even combine that with six head positions. So, I'll put my head in the into an extreme position here, ties into the vestibular system. So, I'll do box breathing here, rotation, opposite lean here, flexion, extension. Like if people see me on a plane, they probably think I got some weird nervous tics. because I'm always moving my head, doing nasal breathing. So it's a kind of mostly intentional. Maybe I got some nervous tics too. But yeah, I think ground contact, nasal breathing, head position, eye position, full body positions are really low hanging fruit. I would say the brain in the body, is it's it's wired in that it doesn't want to waste resources. So if you don't visit these positions ever, I think the body starts stopping that communication to those positions. So I think it's super important to visit all these positions you possibly can
0: i was just thinking when you were explaining that and you walk outside and you're in your squad yep. doing all these isos hopefully your neighbors know who you are and what you do because they're probably looking at you every morning like
1: my, my wife over here right now doing? she's looking and she's raising her eyes i was telling <laughs> it's so funny because i remember when i started doing not when i started doing but i start like really putting it all together i was probably about two three years ago i'm in the front yard and i have my shirt off too you know because i want to have the sun shine on my skin as much as i can don't use sunscreen and I'm doing that. And the first day she's laughing and she's running a video. I'm like, oh, geez, she's weird. So the first day she kind of thought it was cute, right? Kind of funny. Day two, she saw me. She goes, you're so weird. And then shut the door and went back inside. Like, so she, that, yeah, that's so funny. I guess that's
0: that. probably the point your neighbors are at now. Like, oh, Sean's just out there yeah. doing yeah, this weird stuff. sun <laughs> ritual. Oh, yeah.
1: oh and i doing a morning walk. I'll do stuff too. I'll do the six head positions. And then I'm walking backwards doing a six positions. So yeah, my neighbors think that- They probably think I'm recovering from some kind of horrible car accident. I'm doing all these weird exercises, walking in the neighborhoods and stuff.
0: Hey, you're 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 walking the walk, literally. Walking the walk.
1: Yep. Yep. Totally. Um,
0: One one question I had, and we can maybe a little bit off tangent, but something I've thought about since like taking your courses. What's your like elevator pitch to somebody that's not within this field that doesn't know what isometric means or doesn't really like? What is your baseline elementary elevator pitch to either a client who doesn't know anything within this realm or maybe even an athlete in terms mm-hmm. of utilizing some of like the signal six exercises because some of them just like your morning ritual you probably see like some of the signal six exercises and you're like oh that's kind of a weird position. so what is like your your elevator pitch to kind of sell athletes or client clients on
1: that specific system of exercises? Do I, do I look stressed right now? Because because I am, because you're hitting on the question that keeps me awake at night for the last 15 years. Like, how do <laughs> I have an elevator pitch? and I explain this? So I, I would say I don't really have a great one. I probably, if people ask me 3,000 times, like, hey, what do you do? I'd probably give them 3,000 different answers, but I'll, I'll give you one. That I think, but to pick one, I think the best analogy I, I like using the analogy of a cell phone, because it's something we're all aware of. So in your cell phone, there's, there's basically two ways to get. You know, for us, the, I'm assuming you guys don't know how to build a cell phone yourself because I know I don't. But for for the end user, there's two things. There's two general strategies we can take. We can say, hey, you know, I got this cool cell phone. Like, oh my gosh, there's all the apps I can do. And I, oh, here's here's one to take me hiking. It'll map out my courses. And here's one. Here's an angle meter because I'm gonna do like a goniometric goni- uh, assessment on somebody or whatever. Here's a reaction time or it's something you know. Here's how to find movies that fit my personality. There's an app for everything. So I think most people are indoctrinated into thinking, like I'll just put another app on it, and that's what we do in the human movement industry. Oh, let's uh, let's do this stretch routine. Let's just do this, uh, whatever you know, this program. But the other option is uh, you can update, you know, the, the operating system and i think that's what we're doing with square one i think we're updating the operating system trying to get this the settings back to the factory settings so i'm not even trying to enhance anything i'm just trying to get things back to normal as best as we can cuz nothing beats normal right so we get things normal but because we're in the way we're designed uh, our miraculous design allows us to keep this the party going to keep the show going in spite of crap that happens you know breakups and broken toes and whatever, losing jobs, all these things that happen. So my thing is instead of adding apps to it, I, I look at we're doing square one as, as it pertains to posture and movement, we're really up, updating your the operating system so that all the apps you wanna run can run smoother. So I'm not the guy that tells you, hey, you should do this program or this program or this guy's meditation program or this golf swing program. I Not that I don't care, but I kind of don't care. All I want to do is I'm going to get your operating system running so smoothly that whatever you decide you want to run or you and your coach decide you want to run, like that's awesome. My job is just to return you back to your coach, make sure that uh, you have all those, the, the more robust functional operating system.
0: No, I like that. I like that a lot. I think that as you were explaining that one thing I remembered, and I think I don't know who said this. Maybe, shoot, maybe it was you. Maybe it was Dan Fichter. Somebody within this neurology realm um, talked about this idea of increasing the readability of inputs to then in, increase outputs. Was He was talking about like, it, it might've been you. Like I said, I don't, but anyways- I,
1: don't so. I, like that. I like that vernacular. I don't think that's me, but I like where this is going.
0: But one thing that, one analogy that I heard in the terms of neurology was- imagine you're in a room and you're standing on one side of it and there's stuff in the room, there's chairs, there's beds, there's whatever vases, all this fragile stuff. And mm-hmm. somebody says, run to the other side of the room as fast as you can, but they turn the lights off. I love it. That's a And th- then it's th- like, it. by like introducing some of these neuro- um, neurological concepts and like the tactile system and the vestibular system, and hitting these isos with Signal Six, you're now like turning up the light on a little bit more. And if you do some of it, maybe the lights dim. If you do all of it, and your system's like functioning perfectly, then the lights completely on. And obviously, you're going to be able to run to the other side of the room a lot faster.
1: Yeah. Or, or, or a different analogy, another option would be to just get rid of all the obstacles in a room. So even yeah. argue across. So I, I, feel like we're almost like getting rid of the obstacles, so you can just take the straight path. Yeah. Or if you take a straight path, and there's obstacles, like you bang into stuff, or you got to jump over it, you got to work around it. So our whole thing is like, hey, can we give you the most direct path? But that's a great analogy. I love that. Yeah, I that, think I, take,
0: I think taking the obstacles out of the room is actually even a better yeah. analogy because oh, dude, than yeah. turning the light on. It's just like now there's no obstacles. You need to go around, and it's just one straight path.
1: I'm gonna. Yeah, I love that. I agree. I'm gonna give you another one just because this is this is great. It's fun for me to try to run through some different try some stuff out on you guys. Yeah. I like the idea of. Uh, you, know, you open up Google maps and like, oh frick, I'm always behind. Like I'm always not, and not intentionally. So but I'm always like two minutes late. I just, I just am right. It's like, crap. I gotta, I gotta break my record going from A to B because there's, there's whatever there's traffic or there's whatever, like son of a gun. So I look at square one instead of saying, oh, look, yeah, there's traffic here. There's construction there. What we're doing is that we're getting rid of all the debris, all the obstacles. So you can take the freaking main highway every time. So instead of like, well, that's all blocked. Let's do this. Let's build skill in the off, you know, the the secondary, the tertiary. And the the fifth best way of doing it, the industry is trying to build skill on a less than optimal pathway. And so we're building, you know, we're building function or we're building skill on top of a dysfunctional neurological base. So my thing is like, why don't we just get rid of the crap and you have a better neurological base. And without even changing your workout routine and your your training program, you're probably gonna run faster, jump higher and feel less pain and be more mobile because that's just what, that's what we see. It would it wouldn't make sense that if we're actually getting rid of these neurological debris or obstacles, it wouldn't make sense that we wouldn't see people consistently get better. And that's what we're seeing. So
0: yeah, it's- no, that's great. I like the I like the idea of the Google Maps because I think everybody can relate to that because that is the most prevalent thing in the yeah. modern day world.
1: And but people are settling for like, oh no, I'm gonna. I want to get another app to figure out how to get a better course around the problem. Like, why don't you get rid of the freaking problem in the first place? So that's, yeah. that's even better than another app. It's like, why don't we just get rid of all the crap?
0: If you were able to get rid of the traffic, wouldn't you just get rid of the traffic instead of, oh, instead of trying you to can find the
1: speed limit safely and still get there quicker. You don't have to drive like 120. Cause if I take the side roads, you got to burn through stop signs and yep. there's a red light, but there's no way coming right left. to Hit it. You're breaking laws and put yourself in harms. Like, well, you might get there at the same time, but that's a lot riskier than, just it's a i think it bugs money, man the tortoise and the hare The you know like i'm, I'm gonna smooth straight consistent path is gonna beat the crap out of all the all the special mojo stuff that everybody's looking for yeah
2: 100 i do want to ask um uh, and i want to make sure we get to this part of just the application part of it um within especially because i would assume that most of the people who listen to this are in the team setting okay um so i know that you know, you talk about oftentimes coaches who kind of come through your courses and then you kind of talk about some of the things, the way that they implement um, what they've learned. Um, yeah. What are some of the ways in terms of the team setting, whether it's, you know, 110 man college football team, yeah. a 53 man NFL team, or just, you know, some random college program, whatever, that coaches are able to implement some of the more neurological approach to training successfully, yeah. whether it's in the warm up, the cool down, however you might've seen it, that okay. other coaches can kind of follow suit
1: sure so to me my head goes right away to uh we got the the quick cheap and easy free or almost free answer and the more expensive route you know which you to get more robust uh way to answer that but real quick cheap and easy things that uh, coaches could start doing is um you could start running different little pieces that are having this reset ability i guess you could call it of the nervous system um, you know, nasal breathing and any eye movement at all is a reset. So you like looking up, sniff or a circular movement with your eyes and, and a nasal breath is a reset, you know? Um, so that'd be really easy. And another really easy thing you could do. That's also a reset is there's this part of your ear called the tragus. It's this little flap, of cartilage that sticks out the front medial part of the ear here. Uh, so we've experimented with this. And I got this one from, uh, I always like to quote my resources. Um, and I love that because so much of square one is uh, original work. And a lot of people have stolen from other people and they don't want to tell you where it is. So I, I'm, I like to call it the industry. Like, eh, where who's your, who's your resource? Like, I want people to operate with and more integrity than they tend to. Uh, so I always like quote my resources. So I got this piece from, um, there's a video on YouTube called uh, How Trauma Gets Trapped Inside the Body and What to Do About It, part one, because there's three parts. It's only, the. it takes longer to recite the title of it. It's only like 11 minutes. So, but it's a, how the body or how trauma gets trapped inside the body and what to do about it. Part one, I can't remember her name, but she was talking about different parts of the ear and I started playing around with that tragus thing. So what I found is if I just poke it like a button one time, it doesn't do anything. But as soon as you do a double squeeze or just a squeeze on a little twist, it doesn't have to be painful. It's just a little, little, like a, a half second massage or one second massage. So, if I'm a coach, I have a you know bunch of dudes, and whatever you're doing for your warm-up, whether you're doing some balancey things or you're doing some sprint things or whatever it is you're doing, hey, every minute on the minute or every two minutes, boom, everybody, two seconds, rub the tragus, boom, and then move on. So, you could – I mean, that would be one second. Like, you put 20 of those in your warm-up, 20 of those in your cool-down. That would be, like, no – what's that ask asked for 10 seconds of your day or something like that's nothing and super impactful and just let your warm up and let the workout itself be that's the challenge that's the triggering that's going on and then in between sets even during the workout in between games in between plays you're a football team after the play's over you got what you know 18 20 seconds 30 seconds between the snaps um on the way back to the huddle you're literally just looking around, which they're going to do anyway. Nasal breath, just having like kind of coach your team, have a presence of mind and little down times to just do a nasal breath. So nasal breathing, a little tragus reset. I would just, boom, I would, I would just sprinkle that into everything you're doing and there's no assessment with it, but it's low hanging fruit. And how, how do you over medicate squeeze in the ear and, and breathe through your nose? Like that, there's like, I can't imagine what the downside would be of doing something like that. Uh, and then you know, for, for a hundred bucks, a hundred dollar answer will be like signal six. That's a hundred bucks, but like one coach right. can do it and run all hundred athletes. So if you're talking a buck a guy. So that'd be a really another, another thing you could do. Uh, the problem with signal six is that it's not very specific to the individual, but for a hundred bucks, um, you know, at one point I was tracking like where the regions were finding load intolerance, and, and I think it's like I can't remember. It was like 77% or 83%. It's about 80%. What we're finding was between the neck and the knees. So that's the beautiful part about signal six is like, you're, you're, you're getting a lot of low hanging fruit right there. So that's a very cost-effective way. And then the end result would be like, uh, you know, the most expensive, but the best is old team should hire me come in because you can learn my stuff. I can teach a square one, but this is all I do. And And a strength coach trying to learn this stuff, like, even if they took it really seriously and they got really good at it, like, well, great, you are where I was like 13 and a half years ago. So, you know, so the expensive answer, well, they should hire me to come in, train their whole staff. And then I'd mentor the staff Say, hey, look, in the next year, two years, three years, I'm gonna try to get you guys like 80% to where I am. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, that, there's, your, there's your gambit. So tragus to hiring me and everything in between. But I, I just think the tragus, nasal breathing, you just can't go wrong. And it's... It's a little bit random application of these resets, but okay, it's, it's, nobody's dying. And some guys, it's going to be, it's going to be life-changing on certain percentage of of these athletes. It really is.
0: No, that's an amazing answer. I think that the usability of the first part all the way to hiring you is, is a great spectrum. And I also think that that, just to give like Signal 6 a quick plug is, it is a, I can't even imagine the depth of knowledge that you put into this system. And that's kind of why I asked the answer of like how long it took to create. But for me, I was expecting to walk into signal six and it being like overwhelming. And like the application would be a little bit like tough to do. So simple. Like, I don't necessarily need to know everything that you need or that you know about this, but I know that like, I trust your knowledge and your depth of knowledge with on this topic. So I'm able to implement these exercises and it's just so simple to do. Like, it is not hard. I do it myself. I've done it with my athletes. Um, Awesome. So I think awesome. it's I think it's a great system, and I love that you created Signal Six because I think in my setting and in, in Mike's setting, Square One is tough to do on a one-on-one setting with like getting an athlete in and doing it. But Signal Six yep. is literally like the perfect warm up. Yep. That's how I use it.
1: And what that's great, and thank you for the the compliments, and, and thank you very much because I, I was. I was hesitant to put Signal Six out because I'm like, oh, is this, is this too stupid? Is this too dumb? Is this too baseline? And then right away, the coach was like, this is great. Like, oh, okay, because it's so user friendly. I mean, it's super easy, and a lot of people feel really good when they do it. And we've had these different success stories come back in. Uh, dang it, I lost my train of thought. I was really excited to say something, but that's all right. If you
0: if you remember it, shout yeah. back in. But one one little one little rabbit hole that I kind of wanted to go down was about the eyes. Uh-huh. And one question I had for you was how how um focused are you on the eyes within the actual square one system are you are you testing like lateral eye movement as a trigger as much as you would with like heel eversion like are you focusing on the eyes that much and i'll tell you the the background to this question and why i'm asking it is because in the current state of the world everybody is hyper fixated on a screen and mm-hmm. for example, a lot of my guys, most of my guys now just have online classes. And
1: mm-hmm. then when they go to a
0: tutoring session, they stare at a screen. Uh, and I just think that their eyes and whatever it may be, lack of peripheral vision could be the cause of so many issues. So how yeah. fixated are you on the eyes? And then what are some solutions you may have to kind of combat that hyperfixation on a screen for 12 hours a day?
1: That's a great question. Uh, The short answer is I I would say I'm not as fixated on on it as I should be because, you know, people talk about how, you know, your vestibular system, you know, balance, you got proprioception or like feel, I guess you could call it, and you have vision. Those three sensory systems make up, you know, posture and movement. And they estimate that 70 to 80% of the sensory contribution is coming from vision. Uh, So I, I do use eye movements and challenges on almost every one of my clients but I, I, I might start tipping it more and more that direction. Um, as far as how to resolve it, it's funny, man. I see stuff online all the time, all these coaches doing, you know, doing saccades and these drills, and I'm not anti-drill. And like we ha- I I use synaptic glasses with my my clients and all that. But I just, I think I look at all this vision stuff totally different than how the rest of the industry looks at it. I think people are like, oh, here's what I do to correct it, doing all these eye correction, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Dude, that, that, you're not correcting anything. you are I, I i shouldn't say that. That's a strong statement. You're probably not correcting anything. You're probably training the person how to compensate around a funky expression that you observed. So what I do is I take all these vision drills, and I use those as triggers in the system. So I'll have them do whatever drill you want to do. And then I'll assess, does the nervous system have a threat response? And then I neutralize the threat. And I go back to the drill. Oh, it threatened again, neutralize it third pass, fifth pass, 20th pass, at some point it's now accepting it. And then I move on to another one that I do, you know, convergence and divergence. And I do it in different head positions and different postures. So I said, hey, we're going to do this for months. Like, screw that, man. I don't have that kind of time. So I actually neutralize the threat response and all those different drills. So people like, a lot of times it's funny is we'll put some stuff online. And I think they think I know more about the eyes than I do. And I'm like, actually, I think I know less than you do, but I think we're getting past it quicker because all I'm trying to do, I just see as a threat, And I want to clear all the threats we can, so I don't have to think about it. I don't need to know, oh, that's your uh, vestibular ocular reflex. I don't care what you call it, dude. All I know is you need to be able to look right, left, up, down, corners, dynamically, statically. I want to get it where my athletes, none of that throws them off. And then what have where that doesn't throw them off in six head positions while they're standing on both feet, one foot, and then dynamically while they're walking, running. So I use it all the time. I bury it, and I I stack it into how I'm triggering people is, is really what I'm doing with it.
0: Yeah, I think layering on the movement within the eye positions is something that I haven't even like considered. I think that like the balance position with eye movement, walking with eye position, your head turned to the right with eye position is just like a whole new layer that I haven't even like really considered. But the one thing that I have thought about with it and back to my point of like staring at a screen all the time is back to threat. And one thing that I've come to understand with vision is like a lack of peripheral vision can put you in kind of like a threat response. Oh, yeah, dude and i think that with like if i were to track even my screen time like i've been on my computer for the last hour long hour and a half i'll scroll my phone for a little bit today i'll text people today now if i compare that to a collegiate athlete and it's like they take online classes so they're doing yeah. online work they play yeah. video games after their classes in between playing video games they're texting people and scrolling on instagram like, and then they go to bed i'm just right. like their peripheral in- yeah oh. their peripheral vision has to be Decrease so much so i'm trying to think of like that's amazing. what can i do to widen periphery because that could I be got a you.
1: huge
0: perfect dampened right. input
1: that that's cool that that coaches would actually care about that because we actually check that on a lot of people peripheral vision oh man like we could talk for hours here dude um this is great so i start checking peripheral vision on people and then i would do i would just clear different triggers breathing squatting what have you and even when i've done non-specific triggering so i'm not even talking eye drills i'm talking about just walking around it triggers them we clear these things out and then we check peripheral vision when we run square one peripheral vision almost always opens up so the first 15 people i did it on without even doing specific eye drills that, that fix a peripheral vision literally it was 13 of the first 15 opened up peripheral vision like by anywhere from like four to like like 30 percent or degrees, I can't remember percent or degrees, but it was very statistically meaningful, right? Uh, but things you could do very, very, very specifically is I like using peripheral vision check as a trigger. So it's really fun to do. So what you could do, uh, if, if someone doesn't, you know, know square one or how to neuro response muscle test, all you can do is literally, you know, have, you know, looking straight ahead at a fixed object and just take their you know, own fingers out to the sides, kind of get it right on the edge, right where you're really pushing the envelope and what their, what their ability is. Just assume the first two, three, 10 times you do it, it's a, it's going to be a trigger because it rarely doesn't trigger only two or three times. That that little drill usually triggers five to 20 times. So what you do is you'll do it, challenge it, take a break, rub the ear, do it again, do it again, do it again. And when it doesn't uh, trigger, it almost always opens up. You'll actually literally see that they can now see further. So you can experiment on yourself and do that. So it's just use it as a challenge then do a little tragus reset or eye movement with the sniff, whatever you want to do. And then do it again do it again and just keep going until like whoa i think that just opened up because it, it, it probably just did so that'd be a real cool little takeaway you could do yeah uh, no that's actually, awesome
0: i think yeah. one of the questions i had
1: was uh is that how you
0: like when you're saying you check periphery or test periphery is that how you kind of like go about doing that with just a simple like
1: hands uh, yeah, out front? like i got like a, a vision disc which you need like a license to buy which is a freaking it's a stupid protractor for your eyes. Like, oh yeah, like who am I gonna hurt with it? Like, I'm gonna smack them over the head or something. It's so the world we live in. Like, I need I need a special haul pass to buy a freaking protractor. It's so ridiculous. But I got my PT buddy to buy me one. And uh, so I'll do that sometimes to mark them. Uh, but a lot of times it's just I'll have them laying their back on a table and I'll, I'll literally I'll and I'll have a video camera. So I'm hitting them longitudinally at the top of their head. I have a video camera rolling on a tripod and i'll just have them go out as far as they can so then lay then i'll later on i'll go and, and i'll pull out still frames from that and i'll lay down a, like an angle meter deal like a protractor thing right over it so but it's it's usually pretty freaking obvious i mean with an athlete if you're in a room with them you can just have them stay in one spot you can mark the floor have a picture in front of you and then maybe like oh in reference to the door that's over there and the window frame they'd be able to you know we're not looking for who cares. It's one degree. It's probably going to open up like, honestly, like anywhere from like five to 50 degrees is usually, I mean, it's usually pretty profound a lot of times. Yeah. Part of me is also thinking that if I were to do just simple, like, Hey, test yourself within
0: a up, like uh just very, something simple. They're all standing in front of me. This is yes. very subjective. The least <laughs> objective thing that you could do, but like, I could probably see a difference over the course of days, weeks, maybe even within the session, like how extended you'll, you'll
1: are. probably see it right away if you if you just stick on it uh the problem is if you don't test you won't know when it's done triggering but yeah. usually with that particular trigger with that particular input whatever you want to call it once it no longer perceived as a threat you almost always see it open up like again subjectively but like very obviously it's subjective but it's like it's not a degree like it's it's, it's usually like oh wow that's significantly more uh broader range you can see into yeah no that's, that's awesome like- let me back up real quick. i was going to say something. To you. you said about uh, this whole. You didn't think about layering the eyes and the head positions and the postures. When I said earlier, I'm going to have an online product, and I don't want to mention a name. It's all centered around that. So it's, I think coaches are going to dig it because it's like, oh my gosh, it's like it's all centered around locomotion, like postures within locomotion, head positions, and vision stuff. It's it's so cool because it's like it's a, now we're going to bring in a little bit of a of an assessment. So it's going to be. A dumbed down version of Square One or a a steroided version of Signal Six, so it's somewhere between those two. It's gonna be pretty cool.
0: No, it's very exciting. I'm gonna have to check that out for sure.
1: Yep. Um,
2: quick, quick, uh, question here, and and it's I don't know if the language of this is exactly right. Um, so I'll try to communicate as best as possible, but almost like we've been talking about taking ourselves out of threat or trying to avoid threat and whatnot. But there does seem to be, and part of that answer is. The necessity of some threat to grow. Uh, And so, so for myself specifically, the thing that I think of right away is I'm like never barefoot ever. Mm. And like you talked about kind of grounding yourself. Mm. And when I am barefoot, and I know this conversation that Hunter and I had back when we were at Davis because he got super into like the tactile stimulation and Mm. and like I can't, I can't walk across concrete without like my feet being like, holy hell, like this is too much. Yeah. yeah. And part of it's just I'm barefoot. And like, certainly that's the threat Like the other day I was up at the beach the other day and, and to get into the water, there's like two yards of like rocks and then sand and water. And it's like, mm-hmm. these are the worst two yards of my life. Right. Trying right. To, right. To, like, these damn rocks. Right. But just like the necessity of exposing yourself to threat in order to figure out how to adapt to threat.
1: If that well, makes that, sense. That, that's, I'd say that's, that's a way to fuel compensation. Cause I think, I think that's a, not to pick on anybody it's kind of a piss poor way to deal with threat i think and that's what the industry is doing 99.99 yeah. percent. so it's funny the first time i talked to dan fichter he's on a call and we start talking stuff and i was talking about you know muscle testing Yep, i'm doing some of that and he talked about how he you know finds out which patterns like we talked about earlier like bilateral squatting and how that's this threat response and i said well so you're using muscle testing to find out what these people should be avoiding and i'm like I use it to find out the stuff that's causing a threat response where I got to get it where it doesn't even be perceived anymore as a threat response. So I don't know that exposure actually changes the threat response. I think that's actually fueling a coping strategy or a compensation strategy. So instead of avoiding it, my thing is like, I don't try to avoid anything. Like I'm always listening to, well, here's what my PT doesn't want me doing or here's what I'm avoiding my workouts or my coach doesn't want me doing those things, those things that they're trying to avoid. I'm like, OK, how do we recreate those scenarios safely? Because I don't want to damage anybody's tissue, but can we actually face the music and get it out there and then rewrite the neurology around that so you don't have to avoid so we can do things through exposure? And again, but I think it's a motor learning technique. That's a that's 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 learning how to. Built around a problem as opposed to like, why don't we get rid of the threat perception all together? as opposed to, well, I'm getting, I'm less reactive to like, screw less reactive. I either want you to, I want you to perceive it as, as, as safety and exposure. Mm, that's, it can happen, but that's a little bit like close your eyes and throw a bunch of darts against the wall. Hopefully hit some targets once in a while. And I'd rather yeah. just like, well, let's just expose it. Let's identify what it is for the individual, customize it, neutralize it because it's so much more uh, time effective and cost effective really. Well, why don't, why don't we, Hunter, unless you have
2: anything else, why don't we jump into that, that last question? No, and, let's, um, let's get to it. Cool.
1: cool. And
2: I know, that, um, I know that you could probably point to a lot of things that we've already talked about as hmm. potential answers for this yep. question, but if you, got, if you have something queued up, and just for the sake of the consistency of our podcast, being this the last question, what is something you do you think that the majority of the field would disagree with?
1: That I do or that I think, or both, I guess kind of both, why don't we do why don't we do both if there's if there's individual yeah. answers we can jump into both yeah i think this is kind of straddles both so it's like um and we're kind of alluding to it in that last that in that last question there my answer um I, I, this whole idea that movement is corrective or movement is medicine i think that's i think that's kind of a trash idea i don't think that's a true idea and i should say you know that, that, that i said it that way to kind of like get people's ear attention here. Cause like, okay, this guy doesn't like exercise. Like, no, no, no. You're mishearing me. I'm saying that movement doesn't correct. And movement itself doesn't, it's not necessarily medicine. I think that movement is an input and it's movement reinforces whatever neurological status you're in. So if you're someone who compensates a lot, you're actually basically, when you do movement and there's some goodies that come out of it, of course, you know, again, exercise worked long before square one showed up on the scene But I'm saying is when we're compensating a lot and you exercise all the time, you're actually getting closer and closer to your next injury because you're fueling how you currently compensate. Now, that being said, I'm not, I don't want people to be afraid of movement and exercise. Of course, we should be doing those things, but this false understanding that we just have to, we just have to move more. Like, ah, yes, if you're talking about the lowest most physically the worst person on the planet like they're literally a couch potato in front of a screen and they're eating potatoes as they're being a couch potato you know they're eating potato chips and that's all they freaking do yes moving is a whole lot better than doing nothing but i think we can do better than that so the whole idea is that we we probably want to improve the brain's function and improve how it perceives the environment ideally you would do that first and then any and every exercise you do is going to reinforce a better status. So the whole idea of, like is taking people a little bit to task on this whole idea of movement is medicine. Like really every athlete, well, they've also got hurt doing exercise and movement too. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Just like there's, there's risk inherent with these things. So just this whole idea, like, yeah, movement is medicine. Like, well, that's great slogan on a t-shirt, but it's kind of, it's a little bit bullshit a little bit. So I think, I think that's a that's a very profound answer and something you said in there and I tried
0: to write it down as you said it but I, I think I missed it but it was uh like compensated movement is fueling your next injury is that what you said yeah yeah it's
1: getting closer to your next injury
0: I think that's like maybe the quote of the show right there that we should put like cool as, I don't know but I think that's that's really interesting and, and good for people to hear because that's pretty profound I love that
1: yeah it's like I mean that's like yeah there's so many analogies but yeah I guess I'll leave it at that because I'll I'll just go from one analogy to another to another with you guys, and this thing will go on <laughs> and kill your time.
0: No, all good. No, we appreciate it. Tell us. Uh, so, we talked about Signal 6, Square 1. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us where else people can find you um, if they want to learn more about the system and, and what you do.
1: Yep. So, the two places I point people to is usually Instagram and our website. Uh, so, Instagram, uh, it's at Square 1 System. And it's uh, a numerical one. So it's not O any, it's just the number one. And it's uh, singular, not plural. It's not square one systems. It's square one system. And the website is the same, uh, you know, www square one system. Uh, we got a new website. It's not, it's functional. It's not the, it's going to look prettier here coming up, but um, it's, it's better than it had been. So those are the two places to, Instagram is the best place because I'm, I'm putting crap out. Almost every day, like six out of seven days, probably, you know, eight or 10 posts a week. Uh, and that's what we put about workshop opportunities and just food for thought. And my audience there, in my mind, I'm not talking to the end user. I'm talking to guys like us, you know, like people that are in the trenches that are movement practitioners, whether you're a massage person, Pilates, strength coach, chiropractor, you know, anybody who's doing something with movement. I'm kind of talking. That's who I see as my audience, because I'm just trying to give people a, a different perspective on how we can help people get more out of an active lifestyle and get more out of their physical life through improving, you know, perception. Basically,
0: well, that's great, and I think it's a it's a very applicable system to a lot of different practitioners. It's not just strength coaches. I think that that's what's great about the system is, shoot, if you're dealing with another human being in some way or some form, you could probably yeah. use the system.
1: I, I agree. Thank you for saying it. If I say yep. it, I sound crazy, and I'm a used car salesman. It sounds a lot better coming out of your mouth. So thank you. No, I believe it. Yeah, no, everybody, that's uh... everybody has one. Everybody has a nervous system. Yeah, yep. it does. Yeah, that's it. we all say like, hey, everybody has a nervous system. It's why for survival and efficiency. Now go and act like it. That's what I tell people. Go and act like it because you say that, but then you forget about it, and then you go back to your old ways. but like push the envelope, learn something new, and 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 help your athletes, help your clients by you know tipping a cap to the nervous system on some level
2: thank you guys for listening to the episode find us on social media at mtn underscore perform and another shout out to our episode sponsor lumen sports to find out more about lumen or to download a free demo head to lumensports.com or head to the show notes see you guys next week